0: Good morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, specifically verses 13 through 16. Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers that are here this morning. I'm grateful for my father, who who most likely is Live streaming, watching the service this morning. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Uh, what a joy it is for me. I, they're, they're titles that, that I have the privilege to, to have as pastor here at Dawson, as a son of my mom and my father, as uh, ultimately, as, as a husband to Danielle, but I tell you, I mean, on Father's Day, I'm just reminded that it's a tremendous privilege of, of, of being able to be a, a father, and 14 years ago, when I held nine pounds of life in my hands at 4.30 in the morning at Senior River Hospital, and uh, Hayden James came into our life, I mean, it just, there's, there's no, uh, no, no type of joy that I've been able to experience than to be a, a father, and so uh, it is a special day. And it's a joy to be able to preach on Father's Day. And so happy Father's Day to each of you that are here this morning. Mark chapter 10 is a passage I think is appropriate for Father's Day. It's a passage where Jesus is uh, reminding us of his embrace of children, his love for children. We're reminded through this portrait of, of how God is our Heavenly Father that welcomes us into his comfort and to his care. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16 calls us to a, a faith like a child. What does it mean to have faith like a child? What does it mean to, to relate to God as father? Well, we begin in the passage, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, that being Jesus. And the disciples rebuked them, that them as the children here. Uh, verse 13 comes after an extended se- uh, session where Jesus is being interrogated by the Pharisees over uh, grounds of divorce. In Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, we see Jesus has stolen the importance of marriage between a man and a woman till death do us part. Obviously, the whole counsel of God would remind us of the exception clauses of adultery and abandonment from 1 Corinthians 7, from Matthew chapter 5. But what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, we always need to be reminded of, is that marriage is a a bedrock of our society that God has given to us as a gift. It's given to us through the context of man and woman, uh, monogamous relationship to death do us part. Jesus is assouling that as something that is at the very uh, call and fabric of God in his creation. In the midst of Jesus teaching about that, we begin to see a group of children gathering around Jesus. Jesus has the disciples who are sort of uh, bodyguards or sort of handlers for Jesus. And so you can almost hear the disciples say between the words of the page to these children. And we don't know who the children are. I mean, no identification. We don't know if they're children of the Pharisees that are interrogating Jesus. We don't know if they're just a crowd of children that have seen the mass of people gathering in their community, but there's something about the magnetism of Jesus that attracts these children. So the disciples, we can hear them saying, get on, get out of here, get out of here. Go play somewhere else. The only time, verse 14, that we have the word that is translated indignant, Jesus becomes indignant. The only place in all of the Gospels is right here. And out of all the things that Jesus could have been overwhelmed with deep displeasure about the disciples, it is in this moment where they are trying to protect Jesus from this crowd of children. It shows us, doesn't it, the compassionate heart of our Savior. It shows us the compassionate heart of our Savior. If you're looking in your copy of God's Word, this image is an indelible image to me. It's a personal image in many ways. Do you see this image in your mind? Uh, when I read Mark chapter 10, I cannot help but to see this this sculpture uh, that you'll see on the screen right here. Uh, the sculpture is Dr. Sam Gore renowned artist who's now with the Lord in heaven, but outside of the education building on the campus of Mississippi College, there is this sculpture of Jesus and the children. Jesus loves the children, all the little children of the world. You get and you look into the eyes of these children and you see the variety of, 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 of ethnic and, and racial diversity that is coming To Jesus, the way that Dr. Gore sculpted this this piece is that you can literally, it's big enough, it's life-size enough, so you'll see children oftentimes actually sitting in the lap of Jesus, actual children. We had a replica of this uh, sculpture in our church four-year area outside. It was this kind of prayer garden area, and uh, we would oftentimes do Easter pictures right here, and you'd have the children literally being embraced by Jesus. This image is indelible to me. One reason might just be personal in the sense that Danielle and I were dating. She was an education major, and so there are a lot of hours uh, cumulatively where I was waiting for her to get out of class. And so I was by Jesus in this sculpture for for, uh, a lot of uh, my time there in college. But there is something about this image that gets us to the heart of who Jesus is, isn't it? Gets us to the heart of his care, his compassion, his concern. Now, we can miss this really easily. I actually think this is one of these passages that is so familiar to us. It becomes the cover of preschool Bibles, you know, Bible coloring books, you know, would have this as the color, and it begins to be sort of saccharine, sweet, and there's a lot of sentimentality that is connected to this, and we really miss. We miss how countercultural Jesus is, in embracing these children, in, in, in rebuking the disciples. We live in a very children-friendly, I would dare say children-centered culture. You do realize that never in human history has that been the case. I mean, we're living in a day and age that the care of children Prioritization of children's desires, the the revolving of of uh, parents' schedules around school and extracurricular activities is is something that is a unique part of the affluence of the American experiment that we uh, that we enjoy and we see rich benefits of in 2020. But it's just unparalleled. Uh, so, so you know this. I mean, some of you know in this very sanctuary that children were not to be seen and and not to be heard. Oftentimes uh, you, you remember growing up and there'd be a big family gathering and the children ate wind at the family gathering. They ate last. Now you go to a family gathering, I and mean, all the kids get to the front of the line. And so you've even seen in some of your lives just a, the shift in, in a priority or prioritization of, of children. In Jesus' day, children were not viewed with affection. It just simply wasn't. You, you can search in vain for first century Jewish literature that, that valued children. There, there was widespread abuse of children in Jesus' day, widespread neglect of children in Jesus' day. You, you just don't have any correlation of, of politicians can, uh, uh, canvassing crowds, kissing babies to, to win votes. I mean, it just was not a part of that culture whatsoever. Children in that day, they were essential. Workers at best, li- liabilities at worst, just another mouth to feed. And here Jesus is. He has this countercultural message. Don't forbid them from coming to me. It shows us his heart for the poor, it shows us his heart for the outcast. What these children are doing is they're continuing the narrative of Mark's gospel. He continues to embrace the sick, the lame, the unclean women now children are added to this it shows us his compassionate heart it shows us the way our savior is always pressing to the margins always pressing to the hurting the neglected this is the heart of our savior and so it should be our heart now that gets expressed in a a myriad of ways in a church like Dawson I see Brooke Gibson here, our preschool minister for, for many, many years, and, and Brooke and her team, Donna Allen and Danielle Bell and Meg Brown, and countless preschool children's workers throughout the decades at Dawson. That uh, one of the legacies of this church as a family of faith is to be able to prioritize the teaching of God's word to young children, to come alongside a family. Help disciple their children in the midst of kid life, having to go completely online. All of the work, all of the prayer, and, and and now we have kid life online that many of you have been able to experience. and And one of the reasons is is because we have men and women who see in this call of Mark chapter ten a calling to children and to their families even now, because we realize that the teaching of God's word to children. That that foundation, that bedrock foundation, we want to root in the love of God so that they feel the love of God from, from those uh, Sunday school life group teachers, kid life volunteers the smiling faces, all of that is a part of the legacy. Many of you in this very sanctuary have had your children come to faith in Christ at whatever age, through children's ministry, through life group teachers, through kid life, and you know, you know the way that God uses that. Well, that's not accidental. It's because of the very heartbeat of God's Word to prioritize ministry to children. But, it, but it's not only within the walls of this church. It's not only coming alongside of families. We can think of, of Go Love Tell and, and the establishment of Kids Connection, just one mile up the road from us here, to be able to say we want to prioritize the ministry to children, not only who are going to walk through the doors of this church and are a part of the families of this church, but all of the families the greater Birmingham area, we we want to prioritize ministry in such a way, and so it was the establishment of Kids Connection. And many of you have been faithful volunteers to that ministry, being able to come alongside of families, being able to come alongside of children, to be able to meet needs for the platform of praying for and sharing the gospel with. So you get this, but I think it is important for us to see that it's not just children that are being ministered to, it is that children in that first century world were outcast, maligned, neglected, even abused. So to have a heart of compassion as our Savior does, we must then translate this passage and say not only Is Jesus calling us to minister to children that are connected to families within our church, within the scope of our church, but anyone that is neglected, anyone that is abused? Where is Jesus among us? He is there with the hurting, there with the ostracized. So it's always a forward call. There's always a magnetism. If Jesus was walking in our communities today, I assure you it would be those who were maligned. It would be those that were neglected. It would be those that were abused that Jesus would be with. And if that was the case, then it should be the case now. So we as a church are always saying, God call us. We want to be found. You see it right there? To be found faithful is God's people. So lead us to the hurting. So the Future chapters of our church are always pressing in to the heartbeat of compassion that Jesus exemplifies in this account. But there's more to this passage. Not only do we see the compassionate heart of our Savior, but we see a call to the dependent faith of a child. If there is a passage that becomes a proof text— for, for so many misdirections of, of biblical theology and even understanding the Bible, I think it's this passage here. And we do need to ask ourselves, what does it mean? What does verse 15 mean? Here Jesus says that anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Not a foundational level. What does it mean? Does this mean that only children can be saved? Well, of course the answer is no. Jesus is utilizing a metaphor here. It's a a living parable as the children are around him, as he's embracing them, blessing them. He is teaching the disciples. These are adults that are seeing this model here. So Jesus is saying, you see here, you have to have faith like a child. Now, some people take this passage. They misuse this passage. And it becomes an excuse to to move away from difficult doctrines of God that we at times cannot parse out. There's tension, there's paradox. God is absolutely sovereign, God is absolutely good, but yet there is evil. How do we reconcile this? This is a tension within God's Word. It's a paradox within God's Word. There's evil, but God is sovereign. There's evil, but God is good. He has predestined those who will follow Him, the elect, before the foundation of the earth. But whosoever believes upon Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. These are tensions; they're paradoxes. Now, times at times we can we can see these tensions, we can see these paradoxes, and we say, "This makes my head hurt." I've heard it at times. I, I just have faith like a child, and it becomes this this sort of umbrella. I'm tired of thinking about this. I'm going I'm to move away from this. And so willful ignorance is not faith like a child. On the other hand, you'll have people say, well, faith like a child, child, or the children are so pure. They're so innocent. So we need to be pure. We need to be innocent. You'll hear people say that. You don't say... <laughs> You don't hear parents say that generally, but you do hear grandparents say that. Grandparents who can spoil your children and send them home. So, but, but there is this sense where we, we, we overly connect purity, innocence to children. But what we must understand is that Scripture's teaching is that children are not pure. They're not innocent. They're not sinless. Any parent in this room Ever had to take your two-year-old son or daughter and say, they're so pure, they're so innocent, I need to help them spread their wings. I'm going to take them to Birmingham Southern. I'm going to take them to Sanford. I'm going to take them to UAB. And there's a 10-week seminar on how to be selfish. The answer is no. You didn't have to indoctrinate your children into selfishness. There is something that is hardwired as they are products of original sin. And the sin of Adam and Eve is a sin that I have, you have. We not only have an environment, but we have a nature that has fallen. So we can hang up all of this. We need to be pure. We need to be innocent. We go back to Romans 3, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So he's not calling us to this quote-unquote childlike innocence. I mean, he's talking to the disciples who are the most hard-headed group. they're, They're slow to believe all throughout the Gospels. They're consistently confused by his clear teaching. He is not saying, hey, if you're going to be a follower of me, you've got to be completely innocent. Actually, childlike faith is the opposite of that. Do you you know what these children are bringing that merits God's love? Do you know what these children are bringing that merits that they could receive the kingdom of God? You know, the answer is Nothing. No credit, no clout, no claims. There is nothing that they bring that is going to impress him. They bring nothing to the table. And that is what it means to have childlike faith. We come to him empty-handed. It's when we come to him empty-handed, Realizing that all of our salvation is completely dependent upon him. God isn't in heaven saying, I'll meet you halfway. You do your part, I'll do my part. Childlike faith is realizing that, that a two-year-old brings nothing to the table. A Four-year-old brings nothing to the table. Here it is no clout, uh, no uh, clout, no credit. Here, you, could you imagine a, a three-year-old sitting his mom and dad down? Mom, dad, we imagine the three-year-old saying here, I, I've, "I've been I've been pondering the experiment of my childhood." And I've come to a couple of conclusions. I've come to the conclusion that over the last three years of my life, you've done the best that you possibly could do. You've given me a really good foundation, but now it is time for me to move on. Now it is time for me to soar. I am intended to chart my own course. Thank you for what you've laid for me, but I'm going to take it from here. And it's silly, isn't it? We have a classification. You did your taxes. If you have children, you claim them as what? dependence they're not responsible for figuring out how to pay the mortgage they're not responsible your two-year-old is not responsible for trying to figure out how you're going to balance the budget at the end of the month no they're dependents and so childlike faith is realizing again and again and again our absolute dependence upon him for all that we have in him all of your salvation is dependent upon Him. A childlike faith is realizing that there's nothing that you bring to the table and He's wholly sufficient to save you in your lap. Now this is not only true. It's not only true. Theologians talk about justification. It's that process of sanctification where you're walking and growing in him. So it's not only true at our justification, but it's true in our Christian walk. Not only do we need to declare childlike faith in in the moment of our being made right, our regeneration of being uh, made right by a holy God, but we need that for every step of our life. And the temptation, it, it seems in my own life, maybe I'm unique to this. I think not, though. The temptation as a follower of Jesus is to say, Jesus, you've done a really good job right here. I got it from here. You got me, you got me started on a good path. Thank you. I'll see you in heaven. I've got it for the next fill in the blank. And there is a temptation As Jesus calls us to a posture of dependency, there is always the temptation to come with him with a posture of independence. where we push him away, I can take it from here. And if there was ever a time where we needed him, If there was ever a time that we needed to be on our knees saying, we are wholly dependent upon you for wisdom to face today. I was reading an article by the journalist David French just just this last week where he was talking about the uniqueness of six months of 2020, and he gave just a little bit of a historical analysis of what we have experienced in this sanctuary to lesser degree for, for much of it, but... Four years of American history is being bowled together in six months. He said that we started off 2020 as it was 1974 with an impeachment crisis and we turned from 1974 and 2020 quickly became 1918 with a pandemic and then 1918 quickly uh, transitioned into 1929 with an economic downturn and crash and then 1929 begins to give away to 1968 with massive societal division and unrest. So these cultural touchstones of all of the last hundred years are being bowled together in this unique moment of the last six months of 2020. And who in this sanctuary wants to raise their hand to God and say, hey, I got it. If anything, for the facing of these days, there, there needs to be the call of the Christian to utter dependency upon him. For wisdom, to be able to face what is occurring, the challenges that are before us, The division that is around us, we want to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know every picture of heaven, but I know heaven is a place of Revelation 7, where every tongue, every nation, every tribe is gathered together, and there's this beautiful portrait of diversity that is unified at the throne of God. And that's not just something that we say we look forward to getting there, but it is something that Jesus teaches us to pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I I say, I don't know. I, I don't know, God, exactly what that looks like for my life and for my community and for this church, but I know you do. So I declare that I am dependent upon you. That's why this Wednesday night we're calling our church to prayer. We want to lament racial injustice. This is part of the fabric of of our country. We want to pray for unity. We, We want to adore God in his goodness and his omniscience and his power We want to confess our sin, but we ultimately want to say, God, lead us. Because we want want to live under, we want to be found faithful as your people. So in the facing of these days, we are inadequate. But in our inadequacy, it is an invitation Your inadequacy is an invitation to not lean on your self-sufficiency, but to bow before him in utter submission, saying, God, we want to follow you faithfully. So what will it be? Are you coming before him with empty hands? Are you coming before him with your hands full are you coming before him saying, I'm completely dependent upon you? Or are you coming before him saying, hey, let me do it on my own? What will it be? One of the first memories I have of being a child and, and relating to other children, I mean, it's just, it is a common playground tactic. To begin to compare your family. I don't know if this is just a boy thing, but I I know it was true for me when I was five and six. I can envision being on the playground. I can envision saying to my friend, and my friend saying to me, my friend said to me, my dad's a firefighter. He can beat up your dad. Another guy chimed in. My dad's a contractor. He builds houses. He can beat up your dad. My dad's a mechanical engineer, which is hard to explain when you're five, you know. He designs heating and cooling systems for hospitals and colleges. So needless to say, it, didn't, it never rung. But i tell you one thing that I always feel sorry for about my boys is I have three boys, and never one time have they been tempted at the playground to say, my dad's a preacher, he can beat up your dad. It just never, it never gets uttered, never gets uttered in our family. But boy, on Father's Day, the truth of this passage, we pray, becomes true for us. That a a young child has an instinct to look to their earthly father with total admiration. That's what that five-year-old is doing on the playground. Total admiration admiration. There's nothing my dad doesn't know. There's nothing my dad can't do. There's nothing he can't handle. And the faith of a child is realizing each and every day, not just Father's Day, but each and every day, that we have an eternal father who's never lost a battle. He he has fought the foe of death itself, and he is victorious. He has fought the foe of Satan himself, and he's come out victorious. He has fought the gates of hell, and he has been found victorious. So we celebrate that we have a Heavenly Father in the midst of our inadequacies who knows all, who is perfectly good, and who, church, remember this. He will never let you down. This is the faith of a child. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this morning declaring our total dependency upon you. We look to you and to you alone to help us navigate what oftentimes can feel overwhelming. We often feel this pressure to have to figure everything out and to and to have it completely, surefire, take on all of life's events. And we just declare that we are finite. And the challenges that are historically rooted, and the divides that are so Ever present, wherever we turn, can feel, it can just feel overwhelming. We can feel prone to despair and maybe even hopelessness. But you've called us for the living of these days. You've called us as students for such a time as this. You've called us in our communities for such a time as this. You've called our church to be found faithful for such a time as this. Nothing that we experience is accidental, but it is under your providential care. You a good heavenly father, one who is power, power, might, strength, wisdom, knowledge, And so today we bow before you and we declare our dependency upon you, our Heavenly Father. May we have faith like a child. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen.